Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 245. This program is dedicated by Cam Ganisro of Central Long Island. For more information, please visit www.cgicentralli.com. This week, actually tonight, tomorrow, will be Tu Bishvat, the 15th of Shvat, which is Rosh Hashanah Le'ilon or Rosh Hashanah Le'ilonis, the new year of trees. It's also the week of Pasha's Yisrei, the Pasha Matan Teda. So, as is our custom, we begin with applying Chassidus to those timely events. Beginning with Tu Bishvat. Tu Bishvat is Rosh Hashanah for trees. The two different opinions in the Mishnah and the Gemara that talk about when do we consider Rosh Hashanah for the trees, when is the beginning of their season. So Shammai says it's Rosh Chodesh Shvat, Hillel says it's the 15th of Shvat, the Psag Din, as usually the ruling is according to Hillel, the 15th of Shvat. But the bigger question is why is it relevant to us? It's part of creation, it's part of the system, the seasons, Yes, it is vital for us to have the trees, to have vegetation. The third day of creation, God created vegetation. It's a critical component to life. Yet why do we have to honor the Rosh Hashanah of trees? We have our Rosh Hashanah. It's the Rosh Hashanah of the beginning of the year Tishrei, when the human race was born. The judgment of the world and the human race. So what is this additional Rosh Hashanah in its relevance to us? So on a very basic level, you can say it shows the responsibility of the human being and the human race to not just to our responsibility and our personal service, but also to the environment and to the world around us. Many people often wonder, what is the Jewish view on environmentalism? So it may be surprising to, may be surprising to know that the first ever documented honoring celebration of environment is Rosh Hashanah of Lilanus. We honor, it's actually the seasons themselves. Why? Because the universe is a sacred world. Every part of it, every fiber of existence is divinely ordained and divinely created and divinely managed, divine providence. And therefore, we are responsible for every detail, even the world of vegetation. But on a more profound level, we find the verse in the book of Dvarim Sheftim, where it says, Ki Adam eats hasada. Talks there about the prohibition, why not to cut down a tree? Because Adam eats hasada. A human being is like the tree in the field. It's an interesting metaphor. Because we each are like a tree. And the reason, one of the reasons trees were created as they were, to give us a lesson in our lives of how we have to be living up to our greatest potential. Like everything in life, according to the Baal Shem Tov, everything is a lesson, everything a person sees or hears is a lesson in your divine service. Here you have an actual verse that states it explicitly, that we are the tree in the field. So what is the lesson? There are many different lessons. You can study trees and come away with different directives and guidelines. So in several letters, the Rebbe makes a very beautiful point that every tree consists of three, three parts, at least three main parts. One is the roots and the trunk. The second is the branches. And the third are the fruit or whatever else the tree produces. <clears throat> and uh, in the case, of course, of Tubishva, we have the seven species that are specifically associated with the seven species, which, uh, which, which we praise, but overall, it's these three aspects of an ilon, nilonis. It's another discussion why some of the seven species are not necessarily considered a, technically a tree, but they're all, out, they're all growths, they're all vegetation. So these three elements reflect three key forces in each person's life. Let's talk about how it is in a tree. Without the roots, without the trunk, without the roots, you don't have the grounding, the foundation. The branches, of course, is the tree's fundamental and it's spreading forth and it's expression. 
And the fruit is the produce, that which it produces for the future. So a human being also needs these three things. Number one, we need to have a strong foundation, roots, that seek out the water, that seek out sustenance, that give us purpose, in a sense like the mission statement of a person's life. Then you need to have branches, which is our expression in this world, whether it's building our family or it's building our work or the other contributions that we make. But that could also be in a way that does not necessarily bear fruit. And then there's the bearing of fruit, our offspring. That's literally our children, our good deeds. My paid in mitzvahs. What is the fruits, says the Gemara and Seta, says these are mitzvahs, our good deeds. Till the same shall sadikim. The fruits, the offspring of children, are their good deeds. So this is something that already has a perpetual effect. The fruit of a tree, besides the fact that we can enjoy it and have pleasure in it, also has seeds, which which, which will give the ability for this tree to perpetuate itself. So every good deed we do is not just dies with us, God forbid, but lasts on and on and on. Ad infinitum. So the three lessons are, the three components rather, are three critical components that each one of us has. It's a good way to gauge yourself and say, okay, where are my foundations? Where is my expression? And what perpetual impact am I having? And every person on earth is a tree of the field. So that's lesson number one regarding Tubishvat. Now, Pasha Yisrei has another dimension to it. It always comes out in this period of Tubishvat, but has its own obvious lessons in it, and there are many of them. And I'm going to address only one right now. Go back to balance. The one I'm going to address right now is the issue of question Achsidus asks, also the Midrashim ask, why of all parshas is this in the parsha of Yisrael? Do we have the story of Matan Tera? Yisrael, of course, was the father-in-law of Meshur Rabbeinu. And the parsha begins that Yisrael came and says, Ati Yadaiti, now I know, after he witnessed the events of both Exodus from Mitzrayim and Kriyas Yamsuf, he says, now I see that your God is greater than all gods, because of course Yisrael was a, uh, a koyim, was a priest. And the, and the Gemara says, Rashi brings, the Medrash says, that Yisrael knew and was a master of all different um, wisdoms of the world. Now I know your God is greater than all gods, meaning all those that are worshipped by others. Why is this so relevant to be the event that happens before the giving of the Torah? What connection is there? So based on the on Chazal, especially as Zoyar, several Zoyars in different places, the answer is given, one of the answers given is because it was necessary. Since Matan Teda comes to transform the world, Matan Teda was necessary to transform the world. You need to have the world itself acknowledging and becoming aware of the presence of the divine. Because Matan Teda was not just, the giving of Teda at Sinai was not just an event, was an event, as I mentioned, was to change and transform existence. Who represents existence? Yisrael. And that's why his name is, because Yisrael also comes from the word Yasser, which means he added a parsha in the Teda, this parsha, and also comes from the advantage, the strength of Yisrael, Yisrael Ne'er that where do you see the real power of light? When you see it from within darkness. Now darkness here does not mean necessarily always darkness, there's no wisdom, but comparatively speaking, the wisdom of the world compared to divine revelation, that's where you see the power. So because Yisrael was able to appreciate more than anyone else because he was so wise, because he was knowledgeable of all the ways of the world and all the wisdoms and philosophies of, the, of existence, he was able to appreciate. And that became the prerequisite that said, now that the world is ready to receive the Torah. I mean, you think about it, of course, the Torah, the whole existence we learn is B'Shvil Yisrael, B'Shvil HaTayra. B'Resh is B'Shvil HaTayra. And yet, the Torah was not given at the beginning of creation. Why was the Torah not given to Adam and Eve? 
even though the Talmud says, and we know that they did perform, and they did know the Torah before it was given, same thing with the patriarchs and matriarchs, because there's knowing it in an informal way. And then there's the world itself being ready to receive it. The first 26 generations prepared existence in order to receive this great power. Because, as Chassidus explains, that Torah and God are not, meant to came, are not meant to overwhelm existence, but to permeate existence. In simple terms, it means that when we spiritualize our lives and we live our lives accordingly to the higher plan, it's not meant to disrupt or in any way um, disrupt or in any way to compromise our existence. It's meant to permeate it. And of course, this lesson is both personal and collective, that when you educate someone, you educate them according to their way. Why their way? Because the purpose is to integrate it, to internalize it. And the same thing with Matan in general, when we reach to a group of people or to the larger population, it's always meant to be in a way that's internalized. And to internalize, you have to be able to explain it even to the Yisrael within ourselves and within existence, to appreciate it. And the language of Chassid is that the Nefesh al the divine soul, explains it to the animal soul, the beauty and the value of the divine. That way it participates in the journey, and that way it partners with it in a way that it can be transformed in the fullest sense of the word. So there you have two separate lessons that are connected to this time that we're in, in the spirit of Chassidus applied. Okay. To give you a few more cross-references of previous episodes where I spoke about this topic, which is both Tubishvat and Yisrael, episodes 54, 100, 149, and 199. Now, this is a good opportunity. The cross-referencing is because all the previous programs are archived and available. Go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. They could all be downloaded podcasts, and um, as well as you can find other resources there, including, the, of course, the forum, where you can submit an anonymous, completely confidential question, comment, feedback, and please take advantage of this. It's really the heartbeat of this entire program is your questions and your input and your feedback. Um, please also consider uh, sponsoring and dedicating these programs. They're community-supported, they're free programming, and by going to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship to dedicate a program or a series of programs to the memory of a loved one or in honor of a loved one. Okay, with that, let me go on with the next question. Or well, I should say the first question of this week's episode. <clears throat> How do you answer this question? If God gave the Torah today, would it be very different than the one given 3,300 years ago to primitive people? Now, this is the questioner's words, not mine. I just want to make that clear. And um, to, write, to spell it out, here's how he puts it. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. There's a popular apology promoted by enlightened Jews, which goes like this. I guess you mean a popular argument. Maybe you meant apologetic. Okay. The Torah contains laws about capital punishment, sacrifices, slavery, etc. Because it was given over 3,000 years ago, to a primitive people. If God gave the Torah today, the 630 mitzvahs would be very different. Can you please refute this? Thank you, Rabbi. Okay. So, as always, any topic, any question that's asked about any given uh, question, any given issue, you have to make sure it's an intelligent question. What does that mean? Everyone is entitled to ask any question. But it should be informed. If someone, for example, says, what is the contribution of Torah? You have to ask, did you study Torah? Well, someone was once sitting at the table, at some tzaddik's table, and he said, dismissingly, what did Tanya come to contribute? Some tzaddik heard the question, and he asked him, did you ever learn Tanya? So he said, no. So some tzaddik said, and you, Taka Tanya, did not contribute anything, because you didn't learn it. On a very surface level, if you look at any system, it can appear completely irrelevant to us, completely distant, foreign, alien, and maybe even primitive. But that's when you don't learn it properly. The Torah is Pedusha Nitna. The Torah is a very full, rich body of scholarship. 
It begins with a written Torah, but it comes with an oral interpretation, which itself has many dimensions. If you go even further, using the words of the Shalah, the Rameh, and others that says the Torah speaks, not just it hints to things above, but Medaberes Belyenim, it speaks to things above, it's a spiritual book. Or Rameh is Betachtenim, and it alludes to things below. Or in a rather more, maybe in a more famous expression, the Torah speaks in the language of man because it was meant to be a book that we can relate to. So when you learn Kabbalah and Chassidus, you learn the Torah is really shashuyim lefon of the words of the verse. It's God's so-called pleasures, delights. And yet the Torah manifests itself in a book that tells stories in a form of narrative, form of history, form of inspiration. But Chaz Shalom, the Zayar says in Baalei to say it's a history book, it's a story of, a book of, of stories. The Torah is actually a blueprint for life. In the words of the Medrash, like an architect, God, like an architect, prepared a blueprint, which is essentially life's operator's manual. Torah from the word Heira, the word guide, from the word direction. Now, why would God need a blueprint? He doesn't need a blueprint. It's for us. So he put it into a blueprint so we can access it. So it says, God looked into the Torah and created the world like, a, like an architect, follows his blueprint. Kach, the same thing Israel. And people look into the Torah and they preserve, and they, and they uh, yes, Kaim Alma, they preserve the world based on what it says in this blueprint. So as an operator's manual, it tells us how best to live our lives how to fulfill the purpose, the divine purpose for which we were created, both collectively and individually. So these are just the first basic principles. I'm not even elaborating in full, to the full extent that it deserves. So when you have that knowledge, then you look at the Torah very differently. Every detail, every aspect of it is about giving us a blueprint. Now, there are the events actually happened a man like Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden, then came the next generations, and Abraham and Sarah and Yitzchak and Rivka and so on. The Jews went to Egypt, they came out of Egypt. But it begins, the Torah precedes existence, as I just said, a blueprint. And then it manifests also on a practical and physical level. But that's not where it begins and that's not where it ends. So when you read it without knowing all that background, it could sometimes say, you know, what is what relevant to me, what happened 3,000 years ago in the times of the wilderness, or what we have to do in bringing the offerings. Today we don't have a base amigdash, and many of the laws don't seem applicable. So the answer is, number one, they may not be applicable in the physical sense of the word, like we say prayers in the, in the replaces offerings. Bimkem karbonus tiknu. So the offerings today are through prayer. We don't bring physical offerings because we don't have an altar, we don't have a temple. And even the physical part will be renewed with the third temple. So the point is that on a spiritual level, back to the source of Torah, which is where it begins before it became a physical manifestation, that Torah is Nitzchi, is eternal and lives on. So those that begin to, God forbid, tamper with it, due to their human knowledge, limited human knowledge, are tampering with something that's divine. Just because you don't understand its dimensions and its relevance doesn't mean it doesn't have relevance. So it's actually a travesty. Now some people don't know, but to tamper with a book, look, at, look how they revere the, the United States Constitution. Every word is poured over, and everyone agrees that's a man-made book. So the answer is because you need to have a set of laws and we have to follow certain guidelines. So that's a human consensus. How much more so when we say that the Torah is a divine Torah. Now here's not the place to go into the proofs for the divine of divinity of Torah and its eternity, but in answering the question, the answer is absolutely wrong. It's not primitive people. God is not primitive. The Torah is not primitive. The same Torah that guides and is the blueprint for existence thousands of years ago continues to be the blueprint today. We, we adapt it and we apply it to each given situation to today, life has situations they didn't have then. That doesn't change the eternity of the Torah, it just changes its application to each particular circumstance. That's a short response to that question. I will also refer you to episodes 9 
137, 143, 206, 229. Where I discuss more about what Torah is, and, and it overlaps with some of the ideas I just, I just, I just explained. Okay. In the same spirit, since this is the week of Matan Teira, so another question, which also has been discussed, obviously, in this program more than once, is the issue of psychology and therapy. Does a Torah-abiding Jew need therapy? The writer writes the following. I'm trying to convince a person to go for therapy, and his answer is, how did people around Matan Teira manage without therapy? They just had the Torah, so he wants to just learn Torah, and that's that. And that's it. The truth is he needs therapy. He's alone and needs to take his life into his hands, meaning to get serious. He's 33, not married. I want to help him. Please help me help him by sharing more on the subject. Thank you again, Rabbi Jacobson, for your weekly classes on your website. I'm totally hooked. Okay. As always, it's difficult to speak through someone to another person. You always want to speak to the person directly because of the nuances, the individuality, the uniqueness of every given situation. But I'll do my best, and maybe your friend could actually listen to this, or you can share with him what I'll be saying now. So, in truth, this whole program, My Life Chassidus Applied, is essentially, even though we don't need the word psychology or therapy, it's essentially an attempt to take the universal wisdom of Teda and apply it to real-life situations. So early on in the early programs and, and uh, throughout the, the already 244 episodes, I've touched upon and discussed more at length this issue, how psychology fits in with Teda. How do you explain it? Does, does Teda allow for psychology? Or do you just look into Achumish or into Teda Shabbat Peran Shulchan Aruch and Chsidis? to get our answers. So I just want to refer you, first of all, to the episodes when this was discussed. Episode 1, <clears throat> 75, 101, 136, 224, and 225. I even wrote a several articles that you can find at MeaningfulLife.com touching on this topic. And what's the untish to show the bottom line is this. Let me begin from the... I'll begin with Nakal el from the lower level to get to deeper levels. First of all, to say, does the Torah abiding Jew need therapy? In the circumstance you described, it's like saying, does the Torah Jew need uh, heart surgery, God forbid, if their heart is, requires that? Do they need an aspirin? Do they need a doctor and follow the doctor's instructions? The answer is, nitna resus philodapis. The Torah gave permission for the healer to heal. So it needed a special permission but God infused within the human race and imbued them with the power to heal. Not that they heal, it's always that God heals, or God put into the process of the human body and human nature that there's a certain regenerative and healing immune system and healing process. Um, but at the same time, he gave human beings the ability to discover what that process is, to help precipitate it, to help expedite it, to help get rid of infections and diseases that don't allow the natural healing process to manifest. Now, the question is, where does that extend to? That extends to anything that is considered an issue that needs to be addressed. So everyone will understand that when it comes, I mentioned heart, the brain, God forbid, any issues affecting the neurological or the circulatory or the other physiological systems of the human being. Ears, eyes, I mean, the human body needs care. God should protect us all, we shouldn't need anything, but the fact is in life, there are times for whatever reason that we may need that type of care. And the Torah absolutely sanctions by giving that permission. Question is, what about emotional challenges? Depression. Um, We're not going to talk about clinical, because clinical, I think everyone would agree, goes into the category of pure medical, of the medical. But with things that um, perhaps don't need medicine or may not need a professional of that nature, Things that we deal with on a daily basis, anger, jealousy. I mentioned depression. Depression, again, anxiety that is not clinical, and so on. So what's the story there? On one hand, you could argue that it belongs in the domain of Torah. 
learn Torah, be Mekai Mitzvah, be a Torah-abiding Jew, and you automatically have a healthier life. Yet we see many people are Torah-abiding and they still need help. Maybe everybody does. So there the argument can be, the truth is that you can find it by a Rav, a Selech Rav, or by a mentor, a Mashpia. As Alta Rebbe says in the introduction to Tanya, that in this book you find all the answers, and if you can't find them, go to the G'delem Shebi'ir, as I've interpreted in the past, the mature people, emotionally mature people that are tater Jews in, this, in your city or in your community, to get help. You could argue that if you can't find them, so there's no choice, so you go to someone who may be trained in the art of psychology or therapy, the human condition, the human psyche. But optimally, you would be able to find it. You could make that case. Or you could say it also overlaps with the area of Nitin Rishus I'm not going to go into this. This the episodes I discussed this at length, and in my articles about this, I discussed it at length. But regardless, regardless, the point is you could, unfortunately, live in this world and be a novel Rishus for example. That's an extreme version of being despicable and still be a Torah-abiding person. Why? Because part of the Tzimtzum addition, the effect of God's concealment from existence, is such that we can have dissonance. A dissonance between, <clears throat> a dissonance between what we believe and what we do. In the words of the Gemara, the Chassidus cites, The Ganaf, the thief, before he goes to steal, he prays to God, he calls out to God and asks for help. How is that possible? God said, In this week's passion in Matan the answer is there's a dissonance, there's a disconnect. It's not integrated. How do you deal with that? So the Chassidus comes and explains the Rebbe Rashav and Kuntasei Tzachayim, explains the necessity of Primus Atera, based on the Geras HaKedus, Simon Kavov. That Primus Atera internalizes it, makes it Primus, because it's not just an um, abstract or detached idea that you can disassociate from or experience dissonance, it internalizes it. But even with that, we need to have mashbim. We need to have mentors, and especially mentors that have an understanding on, and are sensitive to and have the empathy to human challenges, each of our challenges. So we see from this that there is a need to have a also help of an objective mentor or a mashbim or a rav. Now maybe that's what's called therapy. Maybe that's the original therapy. If you can't find that properly, so yes then you want to find a therapist that's competent, that's also sensitive and maybe even better knowledgeable in the Torah ways. So their suggestions are consistent with and maybe even advocated by the Torah and by Chassidus. So that's the answer. To say, I just have Torah. Yeah, if your life is working well and there's Shalom bias, or in this case, you're, you're, you're able to find your Shidduch. You don't want to spend the rest of your life saying, I'm a Torah-abiding person, but I'm not fulfilling one of the most important mitzvahs which is finding a wife and building a family and, building, and having children. So a person is dealing with that, then that part of Torah tells you get help. You want to go to a Torah person by all means, but you need objective help because who knows what your challenges may be. Now, I may not be serious, but you need an objective perspective. That's the, the short response to this more elaborate question. The next question, as you see, the questions I've chosen are very much connected to, te- I mean, everything is always connected to Teir Chsidis and relevance, but specifically because Matan Teir, the issue of what Teir does and what, um, so to speak, we humans and our efforts using Teir apply to our lives. So the next question is, has also that same, you know, that same vein, ultimate reality it's called. And here the question is, how do we even begin relating to a God that seems so beyond us? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for being a light to the community. I really appreciate you. Please help me gain clarity on how to accept God. How do I fit in my brain an infinite God? Every time I think of God, I just keep thinking, who are you? Where did you come from? How do you exist above time? Why do you even care about this? What is death? Is there such a thing as nothing? Rabbi, save me. These questions cause me a lot of pain. I've looked for help from rabbis and it just seems like we can't understand him. God, that is. 
which makes me want to rec- which makes me want to conclude there's no meaning nothing matters i'm open to learn please help me thanks okay i wish i could speak one on one with you meaning i don't mind if there's others listening if you don't mind but in a personal way to understand what you really mean with this question because every question like this has many dimensions to it and i don't like to speak in abstract terms because this is a personal question. It's not just a philosophical, theological quandary whether we can relate to how can a finite mind relate to an infinite God. You're saying it causes you pain. You're looking for clarity. You're coming to conclusions that affect your life. So I think this has to be addressed in a much more personal way. I'll try my best based on what I read, based on my own experience, based on between the lines. So let's first deal with the theological question. Yes, it's a very good question. How can a finite creature, a finite mind, relate to an infinite God? And we have verses, that your thoughts are not, cannot, are not his, his thought is not your thoughts. No thought can really contain or capture him. You can go on and on, speaking about how God is beyond us completely. And yet, we find verses in the Torah that God gave us. Know God, your Father. Know God. Absorb it or turn it to your heart. Integrate it into your heart. You have constant referrals to a relationship with something, as, I just, as you ask and I just elaborated on, is so infinitely apart, apart from us. So that's exactly what Kabbalah and Chassid has come to teach us. How a God that is so apart chose, chose to be part and relate to us and we can relate to him. And that's why we have a whole Seder Shtalshalos, a whole cosmic order. That's why the human being was created. God is beyond the Tzalem. We know. He's not like a person, he's not an image of a person. And yet God manifested himself in a tselem, in ten spheres, which are divine attributes. So we, from which evolves the ten faculties, so we can connect to God through our ten faculties, connecting to the divine attributes. This requires, of course, a long elaboration. You could say it's all of Kabbalah and Chassidus to explain this relationship on all levels. This interface so the answer, short, briefly, is God chose it. And since the God is beyond, beyond, he can choose to want to have a relationship with us. And that's exactly what life is all about. When we act good, we are emulating God's ways in this world. We are essentially agents, ambassadors of the divine to bring divine light and transform this world it can be a dark world, a world that is chaotic and selfish and narcissistic. Turn it into a world filled with compassion and kindness and goodness and justice and all that the Torah encompasses and describes. Turn the home, the, home, the world into a divine home, into a garden. Basiligani, as we explained last week, based on the Maimer and based on the Medrashim and so on. Of Yutzvat. So, that is the purpose of existence. And that's how we relate. On a more personal level, it means that every person on this earth, including you, the one asking this question, was chosen, your soul was chosen to be sent to this world. You were given all the resources you need to fulfill your purpose. God is with you all the time. As the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 41, God stands near you, over you, and within you, and looks, examines, evaluates, gives you strength to do everything you need to accomplish in this world. Yes, there are challenges because the divine is concealed, but God as relates to us like a parent relates to a child. And that's why you have the hundreds of verses and hundreds of references to that relationship. It's our job is to reach upward and meet God halfway, so to speak. So it becomes a total partnership. Shut of la Kodesh Baruch Hu, but my So 
the short of it personally is you have to know that your relationship with God is intact all the time and the concept that God is beyond to the point that you have no relationship is not correct. Yes, there is part of the relationship is recognizing that as well, but part of it is also integrating it and relating to it in a personal way. It's a personal God. Hashem Hu Alekim. God is not just a transcendent force, but one that also is permeates us in an intimate and an internalized way. An imminent God. The imminence and the transcendence are one. So, I will refer you to episode 635, 83, 107, 151, 181, 187, 200, 202, 206, 243, where I discuss more of this in different angles and aspects of it. To sum it up is... You are God's child. You are God's creation. Caring for you every moment. You matter. And that's why every morning when we say Maudani, we're acknowledging, thank you for returning my soul to me, to yours. And you have a personal relationship with your soul, which in turn is a personal relationship with the God within your soul and with the God that's beyond your soul and beyond all of existence. How to achieve that, that's what we learn Tater for. And we serve God and we learn the levels, climb the ladder that connects us and interfaces between our existence and the divine. Okay. When Mashiach comes, that will be fully integrated, and that means when Nigla Kveda Hashem and the divine glory will be revealed, that Ro Kalbosat, even flesh itself, will perceive and experience it. In a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, all demonstrating that the divine will be with us in a revealed integrated and personal way. One of the other things that comes with Matan Teres relates to the next question, and that is the Sheva Mitzvah B'nei Neach, the seven Noahide laws, as the Rambam Paskins in Sev Ches, the end of chapter 8 of Hilchus Malachim, that it's a mitzvah, additional to all the 630 mitzvahs that a Jew should inspire and influence the non-Jews, to fulfill the seven Noahide laws, the seven universal laws, the code of civilization itself, and do so because it was given at Torah, not just because it's logical and rational. So the question, and we've talked about this topic, so one of the questions that came in is, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I wrote you a letter in the aftermath of the Pittsburgh massacre. That was in episode 234. I conveyed two ideas that we should do in response to that tragedy. Number one, that we should teach the seven mitzvahs of Noach to the non-Jews around us. And two, and to implement a moment of silence in the public schools as per the Rebbe's request and instructions. Idea number two was that we should respond in communal prayer as Jews have always done in time of trouble. May May no Jew know from it. I want to respond to your remarks to my letter. That was back in episode 234. Regarding my suggestion that, regarding my suggestion that official Chabad Labavitch should open a Sheva Mitzvah's office to aggressively teach and disseminate the ideals of the seven laws of Noach on a global scale. In response to this idea, you said that the Rebbe didn't want Chabad to open a Sheva Mitzvah's office. Please explain and elaborate further on these directives as I have never heard this before. I would like to know more details about these directives of the Rebbe. Part two of this question would be, the Rebbe gave these directives to his chassidim. Wouldn't he want us to implement his directives? Why wouldn't he want Chabad to open a special office to work on this mission? It sounds contradictory to me, and how should this mitzvah, or this mitzvah be done? Please explain. So firstly, let me refer you to episodes where I've discussed this. 30, 112, 192 through 194, and 240. I believe I quoted then some of the Rebbe's direct answers to people who asked how it should be done. So yes, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages that Rebbe discussed this. And what I said does not in any way negate that, God forbid, obviously. There's a question of how to do it in a way that will work. And I suggested, I cannot say I saw black and white, but there's enough from the Rebbe's answers that's very clear they doesn't want it to become a Chabad effort so to speak. It's an effort based on the Rambam that every person, every Jew should be doing. Firstly, we can do it practically in a very simple way. People we know, doctors, lawyers, accountants, people we do business with, 
Even people we just meet randomly, if there's such a thing as random. What, what does that mean? You speak to someone sitting near a plane to speak about God, what God wants of us. So just like we would speak to a Jew, we can also speak to a non-Jew. God created them as well. And the purpose, as I said, Shevah is not just some dismissive seven little mitzvahs. They're actually all the Ten Commandments except Kibbutzav and Shabbos. They're the foundations. As I've mentioned many times, if all people in the world, if all Jews kept the Shevah mitzvahs, we'd already have Mashiach here. They're the foundations of a civilization. And interestingly, it has permeated the world already. Over thousands of years since Sinai, since Matan you have millions and millions of people that embrace the principles of the Shevah mitzvahs. Does everyone fulfill them all in the fullest way? No, but uh, the same thing with, non- with Jews. But we see the world is a much more humanitarian, much more kinder place. The principles given at Teir of chesed, of kindness, of justice, of being compassionate, of helping others, charitable, are now staples of mainstream audience, of mainstream world, of the mainstream world in which we live. So it's not something so uncommon, not something so foreign to talk to people about. The question is how to do it. Now, if you go ahead, for example, and and establish an office that's going to what? Spread kindness, justice, all the other mitzvah, what do you think every Christian will say? We already have that. That's what we do. The same thing with Muslims. The same thing with others may not have those religions, other faiths or no faith, but we believe in these principles. So you could also end up being offensive by saying, like, as if you know that means to be, you say it's a mitzvah to be kind. I'm going to preach it now to you. They say, what do you mean? This is what I learn every day. So what are you going to say? You don't know it as well as I do? You don't know that it comes from Sinai? So first of all, they consider Moses also a prophet. And Sinai Mountain Tater is considered God's revelation. But this is not the issue here to get into theological debates, whether the Jewish way is the right way or not. It's not relevant to this discussion. It's getting the job done. Influencing, inspiring the uh, people we meet, the non-Jewish world, to fulfill their calling. And as I said, we're all part of this calling because it's God's mission to this world. So the way to do it is not to be so didactic exactly this way, that way, to get it done. Whatever is practical. And there are many ways. We can, some of us can inspire individuals. Some of us can inspire leaders. Some of us have access to leaders. I mean leaders, I mean government leaders, political leaders, business leaders. Some of us can work with the Board of Education and perhaps help implement the moment of silence in schools. There are many ways this can be done. To to make it, it has to become a Chabad House Department. I would tell you unequivocally, it's not what the Rebbe wanted it to be done that way. And, And I would say that wouldn't be the most effective way anyway for many reasons, some I gave and some others that are not now time to get into. Okay. Next question. Question about life. After a major life crisis, how do you begin living again? I'm close to the beginning of my 30s. How to start again with life? How do you get strength and direction? after a major life crisis that I went through. How to find the core of life and the meaning of being alive and live our mission. How to find what Hashem is asking of us. Why are we alive? How to get up and do something with our lives. Well, again, any question of this nature, especially dealing with a major life crisis, is one that's really beyond the scope of a program like this to fully address properly. You need to speak to someone. Because I can speak about the ideas, I can also speak in some empathetic way and try to address whatever it is that you went through. However, there's nothing like really understanding the details and knowing who you are and speaking that way. So I know I say this uh, qualification again and again, but it happens to be true. And I don't want to in any way presume or assume that by saying whatever I say resolves the issue. It's not the case. I hope I can say some points that will get you going and just plant some seeds of thought and feelings to approach this, but you must talk to somebody. Someone you trust, someone you can open up with. 
when you ever ask a question like that, how to begin living again after Christ's. So what, what can we say? And what I say is not my own words. It's words that are straight from Torah, from Chassidus, and specifically from the Rebbe, who of course wrote to many people who wrote to the Rebbe exactly this question. I went through a different, difficult situation, a trauma, a crisis, a loss. How do you begin living again? So we go back to the most important thing of all. Life is not yours, not mine. It's God's. You were given life. It's a sacred thing. It's a gift. Even if we go through the most difficult circumstances, and God should protect us from anything of that nature, you still are alive. You still are given this gift. Emotionally, psychologically, it may be difficult, and you want to give up, but it's not an honor, not to you and not to the crisis that you went through and whoever it is, whatever it is that you've experienced, it's not living up to what you are capable of because you're given the strength to dig deeper and forge ahead and fulfill whatever it is that your calling is. Now that's why we need each other to help support us, to help give us strength. We need Teda because Teda, especially Chassidus, when you learn it, empowers you with tools, with perspective, with direction, with guidance. And we need whatever it takes to give us that strength. To focus on the positive, to be involved in things that are forward thinking. Now, is it easy? By no means. And I'm not trying to be academic about it. It's easy to talk and give someone else advice. When you're yourself in the situation, it can sometimes feel hopeless, but it's not hopeless. And today we don't need to only go on faith. We've seen thousands of years of Jewish history where we've suffered greatly, individually and collectively. And yet we survived, not just survived, thrived. Kashayana Esam, as we read a few weeks ago, as they were oppressed, the Jewish people, by the Egyptians, in direct proportion to the oppression, they thrived, they blossomed, they flourished. And each of us has that same ability. So you have two choices. You either lie down and say, I give up, God forbid, or you muster up strength, <clears throat> you find friends, you find all forms of support to forge ahead, step by step on your own way. I don't know if I can say more than that without speaking to you personally. But that is the gist and the direction. It feels even uncomfortable to say there are other episodes I spoke about this, but there are, and they are episodes 10, 129, 225. I hope that these words that I shared now can convey some of the feelings and some of the compassion and the strength that is necessary for you to be able to get through this. The only way out is through, and God should give you the strength <clears throat> to be able to uncover your own deeper strengths and resources to get through this and not only get through it, but to become a stronger person and a greater person. And if I could be a further help, please don't hesitate to write. Remember, the form that you submit any question or comment is completely anonymous, so you'd have to add a uh, contact email or other contact information for us to connect with. Okay, the next question, which... Again, it's a topic we've discussed in the past, but um, since it's phrased a little differently, I will address it. It's about the Holocaust. Okay. question is like this. This is a question which has bothered me for a while. Maybe you can shed some light on this issue. In the Sikha of Asar B'Tevis, Tav Shinun Aleph, it's around Asar B'Tevis as well, maybe it was Asar B'Tevis as well, Shabbos Pasha Vayichi and Shemais 5751, it's printed in Sefer HaSikha's Tav Shinun Aleph. The Rebbe responds to the claims of a certain Rosh Hashiva who claimed that the Holocaust was a punishment, God forbid, for sins, Averus. The Rebbe responded that Chaz Rashaam to say that and it's something we as human beings cannot fathom in our limited mortal comprehension. However, there is a famous and sharply worded letter in the Friedrich Rebbe's Igris, Chelik Zayin, Ahmed 187, that's volume 7, page 187, to Professor Klatskin, where he implies 
if not almost explicit, if not almost explicitly, that is due to American Jewry's lack of shmiras hamitzvus, lack of keeping the mitzvus that caused the Holocaust. That's what this writer asks. So first thing I spoke about this very directly in episodes 211 and 212. I'll just sum up some of what I've said then, and maybe I'll add a point or two. And that is, firstly, it's not just a contradiction seemingly between the Rebbe and the Friedrich Rebbe. You'll find the Rebbe also speaks about the examples he's given for um, when events happen like the Holocaust. The example of surgery, you have from the Friedrich Rebbe where he told one other Rebbe and other letters that he wrote that he said God doesn't need an advocate when someone was trying to explain why the Holocaust happened. No Rebbe will ever say, and not the Friedrich Rebbe, that this is why the Holocaust happened because God is punishing the Jews. It may sound like that, but it's never that's not the meaning of it. The meaning of it is, as the Rambam writes in Hilchus Tshuva, that when a catastrophe happens to an individual or to a community, it would be cruel and insensitive to ignore it and say, Mikra Nikris, it just happened. We have to take it to heart because we're aware of it and look and examine our own lives, how, what wrongs did we do and what we can do to correct them. See, reading that, it sounds like I'm at fault of what happened. The Rambam doesn't say that. He says, you have to not ignore it and you have to look inside you, what can I do? Because, as he says elsewhere, that every time a Jew does a mitzvah, he has the power to weigh, to um, counter the balance, to, to, to the, well, let's, let's say the whole phrase, that a person has to always look at that, the, that their merits and their negatives are equal scale. When you do one good deed, it tips the scale, and it brings tshuvat sola, salvation, and, and healing or uh, redemption to the person and to the entire world. God forbid if a person does a negative, it has that negative impact. That's the point. But it doesn't say anywhere we're going to point fingers that this person is at fault, that person is at fault. The Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe, when he saw the assimilation and he saw the, the complete um, indifference to Jewish commitment, the thing that kept Jews together, if you read the letter closely to Professor Klatskin and other letters, it pained him. He was talking as a person part of this. So yes, it comes in sharp words, but the point being is, when you see on the other side of the ocean our own brothers and sisters being massacred, what do we do besides everything we can do physically to help them? Whether the political pressures, financially, to try to save any Jew possible, you have to also look at what we do spiritually. We're one people. And that's what we always do. That's why we say to Hillam when there's a crisis, individually again or collectively, because we believe that our actions and our tshuva and our good deeds can affect the world around us. It's a different statement than saying you're to blame and we're blaming you for your sins. Now, do the collective sins of all of history, from the time of Adam Arishan and Adam Echav and Eitz Adas, throughout history, cause the world where there can be injustices like what happened during the Holocaust or others? Absolutely. But that's not a direct link. It's an overall link of an accumulative link that if they had not eaten from the tree of knowledge, we wouldn't have the Nazis in the first place. We wouldn't have all the other um, monsters and all the other perpetrators and killers and so on. We wouldn't have had Golos Mitzrayim either. <clears throat> Another question is, when, what would it mean in the that it says about Mitzrayim? Fine, that's another question. We've talked about this previously. The point being is that collectively, yes, we have the power to bring the goal. If you bring the goal, you don't have all these issues. If you avoid the mistakes of, our, of, of those that came before us and we correct our transgressions, we create a better world. A better world means you don't have situations like this. But that's a different thing than saying, here we go, our sins are the cause of that. It's not specifically defining the sins that cause in the Rebbe and the Vayichi, that sikh that I'm, you're referring to in Tov Shinonalov, elaborates on the big picture. And it makes it very clear that to say that due to our sins, the Rebbe says that one of the reasons is because the, the, the Achzorius, the, the, the cruelty of, the, of this type of, of what happened during the Holocaust was too cruel to see it as purely a... a, um, a uh, retribution 
for sins. And the other reasons the Rebbe gives there, of course, above all, who are we to say? So there's no way that the Rebbe is contradiction in the Friedrich Rebbe. He's talking about two different aspects of it. And remember, the Friedrich Rebbe is also during the time, and you do whatever it takes. Now you're talking, in retrospect, you're talking about the whole story, that we already, the time has passed. Now it doesn't make a difference anymore what we did in 1944, 1943, because unfortunately what happened, happened. And thank God it ended. And thank God also we count our blessings for what the Jewish people have rebuilt. And Hashem yinkum domam, we say. We don't blame the Jews. We say God will avenge their blood. Avenge whom? Avenge with those that perpetrated the sins. Which of course is another point in this whole discussion that it's not due to the people or to others. It's due to the people who chose to be beasts like that and behave in such atrocious ways. And how do we respond to it? Our revenge is through building our families and our lives and doing Torah and Mitzvahs and filling the void of those Jews that were ripped away from us. Okay. Let me do some follow-up, then the Chassidus question, and then the essays. Follow-up. One is on the Rebbe speak. We spoke about nursing versus bottle feeding. So someone writes, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you very much for your weekly broadcast. I found the question about singing Nagunim in the restroom relevant because I sometimes sing to my baby as I bathe him and I usually sing Nagunim to him. In the book of teachings of the Rebbe Chinuch, published by Anash Chinuch, by Anash Chinuch, they quote Shari Halacha, Uminik, volume 4, page 43, saying, quote, Regarding nursing the baby yourself, this is very correct. This is especially so as in the past few years, even doctors in the United States have begun to speak and write about how beneficial this is for the mother and the baby. Unquote. End quote. This is, what I, this is what they have printed, but I have not checked up the source directly. Okay. So fine. So thank you for that. Um, so it touches upon two things, the nursing and also what I spoke about singing. I, if you recall, I did speak about this aspect. There may be many benefits, and surely there are. The question is, if a person has to force themselves, sometimes medically, health-wise, practically, it's not practical, so this is not some type of that you have to nurse and there's no other way. That's what I was addressing. But thank you for your comment. Okay, that was, that's actually the only comment. Um, yeah, if you're not familiar with the topic, this is a follow-up, so you have to go back to episodes 242, and through 244, where I discuss these issues. Okay. I might as well use this as an opportunity. Since it's a follow-up, follow-ups are basically people writing after things they've heard that I've spoken. And I always welcome comments, critique, rebuttals, sources. Please share, because it's for the public and for the full record of any subject matter. I'd love to be able to bring together all the opinions, all the thoughts that people have, and especially sources from the Rabbeim on any topic very often we don't have a source or we only have one source. Maybe it's good to see more sources. So please contribute in that way. And I want to thank you again, an opportunity to thank you for all the questions that are coming in, continue to come in. We are behind, but we are moving along. Your question will be addressed in its right, at the right time. So don't uh, feel perturbed if you haven't gotten an answer yet. Okay, with that, the Chassidus question. We're connected to this week's Parsha. How does Chassidus explain why Matan Teda Sinai happened only after Yisrael acknowledged God and its application to life today? So, I actually started this program with answer to that question. And briefly, in its application, I mentioned that each of us have to have the Yisrael that precedes Matan Teda, and that is that you want to make sure that your life, your personal life, and even your, the wisdom you have of the world around you can be the wisdom, business wisdom, it could be uh, scientific wisdom, it could be other schools of thought, are also appreciative and prepare themselves to appreciate what God is about and what Taylor is about, which is very much connected to my life, Chassidus Applied, because often I find it very valuable that when you can show the parallels and even show how Taylor is the original idea that has now become popular, whether in psychology or, frankly, in medicine or science, that's a tremendous way of demonstrating the truth and the eternity of Teda, showing that Teda has actually impacted other schools of thought. 
In this case, it was Yisrael that recognized, other schools of thought recognized what God was about, and that would lead to the Teda's revelation. So the Teda does not need that type of endorsement, obviously, but you learn to appreciate Teda, and you learn to internalize it when you can see how it relates to the Yisrael, to the existence, which is what Yisrael demonstrates. So I'm just giving you another aspect to what I spoke about at the beginning of the program. Okay. So now let's do the essays. So we have three essays. And um, essay number one is, these are um, the essays from last year's essay contest. We're still reviewing them. While, and this is a good opportunity to announce this year's essay contest, which is in full force, just launched a few weeks ago. We have till, you have till February 12th is the deadline to submit an essay that applies an idea, concept in Chassidus, to a personal or contemporary life challenge or issue, and with the possibility of winning $10,000 first prize. Everybody can win. It's a level playing field. The contest is geared for you. So please participate. We now have added another track, which is, in addition to English and Hebrew, also Russian. So good news. If you want to write in Russian, you can write in Russian. We will have special judges for that. So the contest has now extended to another language. Um, of course, there's a fourth prize, which is for students only, a $500 prize that only a student can win, even though the student is eligible for the higher prizes as well. All the guidelines and rules can be seen at MeaningfulLife.com contest. Follow those guidelines. Make sure when you write something, go through the checklist that you've done every part of that guideline because that's what the judges use to evaluate each essay. And show it to someone. Show it to someone else. Get their input. It'll raise the likelihood raise the likelihood of your winning and writing a winning essay. As far as the essays of last year, we're going to do number one. Escape consumerism before it consumes you. <clears throat> Again, escape consumerism before it consumes you. By Liad Braud, age 27, Jerusalem, self-employed. So, this very nice essay, which is now posted on at MeaningfulLife.com slash my life, it uh, talks about, about how in this is today's society almost everyone is addicted to something. A person wakes up in the morning and gets ready for work. They go to their top-of-the-line espresso machine. And anyway, bottom line is that we are consumed by a world of consumerism. Goes on to explain the issue. And then says, okay, so what is the Torah, how does Chassidus address this issue? So this essay is meant to address the point that the Perkyovis teaches, who is wealthy, he who is comfort, comfortable, content with his lot, as opposed to constantly pursuing new things, and speaks about the concealment of existence that allows even this consumerism to become such a powerful force in our lives. Haster asterpone, double concealment. Goes through the whole history of Adam and and how existence became to this point, and section two, how do you address it? Using Moshe Rabbeinu, three steps, submission, separation, and sweetening. Three steps that Chassidus talks about how you reverse the process that instead of you being consumed by consumerism, you consume it by using it for the right purpose. Goes through these steps and ultimately transformation, a very um, concise and powerful essay. So thank you for that. The next essay is by the right balance, the right balance between matter and spirit. This is in Hebrew, and it's titled in Hebrew. Let's see, um, Okay, this is written by Ziv Kochba, age thirty-one, Haifa, Israel. A student um, presents a musical, a musician. And presenting in the and, and, and studies in the Kerl Urchamish in Haifa. Good. So the title is exactly what this essay is about: the conflict between matter and spirit, and addresses it interestingly, comparing it to other schools of thought. This battle between this conflict, this tension between matter and spirit, the different schools of thought that address it, and then goes on to say what Chassidus comes to contribute by the key point that matter has its own powerful value. 
in many schools of thought, matter is a contradiction to spirit. And in Chassidus, it explains how matter has powerful value. He also, interestingly, also compares it to another approach in, in, uh, with, between, I believe, the Ramchal's approach and the Chassidish approach, if I recall correctly. So it's a very well done essay as well with very good bullet points and summations and actual practical applications of the different approaches to this tension between matter and spirit. Yeah. And finally, essay number three. Essay number three is to be or not to be. It's also in Hebrew, liyot or laliyot. It's also in Hebrew, and this one is by Dovi Arachman, age 26, Lud, Israel. A, uh... Okay. And he goes on to explain, he talks about self-esteem. Whether well, self-esteem, how do you deal with low self-esteem? So there are many approaches to it. Often the general approach, the classic approach as he puts it, is to try to build self-esteem. And he goes on to explain how... Um, He goes on to explain how lack of self-esteem could actually be a way to build self-esteem by using it for the right purpose. So it's not always about becoming more self-esteem. It's about using your own inner lack of it, lack of confidence, to become the person you should be, the divine person you should be. And actually, this essay, I made a mistake, it wasn't last day, where he compares it to Ramchal's approach and the Chassidish approach. So he talks about different attitudes toward dealing with self-esteem and then comes in a powerful way, explains the, the Hasidic approach to self-esteem. I very much appreciate a very, very interesting essay and a very interesting angle that he takes here. Yeah. And um, I think it could be valuable to the whole discussion and really help people to build their self-esteem in a very counterintuitive way. So with that, we cover the essays and we conclude this episode, as we always do. So again... The, the essay contest 2019 Tufshinai and Tess is in full full force please submit your essay don't lose this opportunity it's a great way to both win $10,000 but even more importantly to actually apply yourself you'll be surprised the value of actually doing that work we released a beautiful um, video that captures the uniqueness of this essay contest you could see this all again at my life at meaningfullife.com slash my life or slash meaningfullife.com slash contest for more details and all the details necessary. I want to again thank you for your contributions, for your support, for your questions. And we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My life is applied. So until next Sunday, everyone have a very blessed week and to use out the lessons of Tu Bishvat, of growth and perpetuation, which of course is what a tree accomplishes and all done in a Yusri Dika way that brings us to Matan to the point that we will be Zeicha to Lassad Lavi when Mashiach comes finally uh, to, uh, to experiencing Tera Chadashim Iti because a world that has been transformed since the 3300 plus years since Matan a world transformed completely and saturated with Elokus, with the Divine. Everyone be blessed and be well.